And moments later, I felt love that this light had for everyone. And then I just sort of left. I mean, I was just in this light for I don't know how long. And, um, and then after a while, it went away, and I was standing in Laguna Beach, California with soggy shoes. And uh, it, was, it was the most singularly powerful and beautiful moment of my life, by far. It's just it's not even close. And I was so moved by it that um, I went back home and asked my neurologist for a CAT scan because I thought I had brain cancer. You guys, it is hard for me to describe how much fun I had interviewing Science Mike McHarg. Um, we talked God, spiral dynamics, uh, social constructs. We talked about fundamentalism and climbing out of that. We talked uh, about what's happening in the U.S. right now. And we talked about how to find a faith that is satisfying, both in the spiritual mysterious realm and also the scientific rational realm. Um, I thought I would love this interview, but I really, really, really loved it. So Mike McCarg, also known as Science Mike, is a Christian turned atheist turned follower of Jesus who uses his story to help people know God in an age of science. Mike's the host and co-host of two podcasts, Ask Science Mike and The Liturgists, that have attracted a curious following of Christians, the spiritually interested, and the religiously unaffiliated. He is an in-demand speaker at conferences and churches around the country, and he writes for the Storyline blog and Sojourners and Relevant magazines. You can find out all of his stuff at AskScienceMike.com, and you can read his new book, called Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. So enjoy the podcast. Well, hey, folks, I am here with Science Mike. Uh, Mike, how are you? I, I, um, I understand you are in the middle of a major move right now. Just a short, uh, you know, 2,412 <laughs> miles. So <laughs> to be exact. Um, so you're moving from Florida to the West Coast. Los Angeles, yeah. L.A. And um, I've only been in Tallahassee 35 years next week. So Wow. Hadn't been here that long. So why the move? Um, I am involved with a project called The Liturgists, and that's based in Los Angeles. And it's just kind of hard to do what I do in Tallahassee, Florida. Air travel is a real pain. Yep. Nobody else uh, creates, you know, uh, content for a living. Um, so it's just a more normal thing to do in Los Angeles. And most of the people I collaborate are in the LA, LA area. Yeah. So it all makes sense. The rent doesn't make sense, by the way, but everything else does. <laughs> yeah, that would be intense. Very insane. I live in Minneapolis and the, um, yeah, I would say LA and Minneapolis rents are a little different, a little different. <laughs> uh, LA well, rents, um, you know, it's very modest compared to San Francisco or Manhattan. Well, you know, but perspective. Other than that. Right. Perspective helps. 
Um, well, I love the liturgists and, uh, so do I think many of the people that listen to the podcast here. So, uh, we love you from that. And so thank you for all the, all the work that you do with that. And, but also with ask science, Mike, um, so fun. I, I just, I, I love the curiosity and, um, and I love your story. So, uh, so my first question, uh, is uh, a true or false question, true or false. Your, your real love for science was revealed one day when you made a homemade proton pack from the Ghostbusters. Um, please, <laughs> please, please tell that story because it's awesome. Uh, well, I was a weird kid, just a deeply strange kid. And um, I had this absolute, resolute conviction after seeing Ghostbusters that ghosts were real. Um which is not a super scientific way of thinking. <laughs> um, and yet. But the guys in the Ghostbusters like ridded the world of ghosts and, and controlled the supernatural and the paranormal using science and engineering. So I did my best to build my own proton pack. I took a bunch of parts out of a VCR and screwed them into a lunchbox and wired them together. And then uh, put that in a backpack and then ran a cord out of that into this very odd looking assemblage I'd found on my grandparents' tobacco farm. <laughs> and, uh, and then convinced all my neighborhood buddies to build proton packs of their own. And we would run around at night uh, catching ghosts to our delight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just, when I read that, I just was like, oh my gosh, that is brilliant. That is so brilliant. <laughs> now, did you sell these packs? Were they, did you make money off of this idea or was it just purely investigative, you know, fun? Was it, was it, uh, yeah. No, I didn't sell them. Um, but you know, was that you're, when you're at that age, kind of early elementary school, um, maybe mid elementary too, there's this interesting blurring between playtime and oh, yeah. real. Your imagination is especially potent. So I think it was both fun and something I viewed as a genuine public service. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Um, I, I grew up in, in Southern California in the seventies and my, my jam was the A team. So mm. we absolutely, the, my buddies and I became, you know, members of that crack squad. And it was, um, I don't know that we saw it as altruistic, but it was definitely fun. Um, all right. So you, um, you grew up a Southern Baptist and one of my friends sent me a question to ask you that I thought was really, really interesting. She grew up in a fundamentalist background, which basically said, you know, anything that was bad in the world, anything that came up small or big was all Satan's fault. And so you'd pray against Satan for everything. And mm. um, and then anything that was good was immediately attributed only to God. It was, you know, it's all God, not you. And so her so her question was um, because she's really starting to deconstruct that. And her question is, like, how do you how do you understand evil in the world? This is a small question, Mike, just a tiny little question. But in the context of the fundamentalism in which she grew up, talk to her about how that affected her psyche and about how she can climb out of that. Hmm. 
So we do we want to go more into like why is there evil or the more how to recover from fundamentalist interpretations of evil? Oh, that's a good clarification. I those think are, those are those are uh, that's a big fork in the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take how to recover because I think that's her name's Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Um, and that I think is where she's going. So how yeah. how do I recover from that wonky, weird thinking that I no longer believe in? I think you start, Sarah, by admitting uh, the ways that um, you've been hurt by your old ideas about God that were handed to you. You didn't discover, you didn't search for this story about God. It was handed to you. And in some ways, this has caused you to experience guilt and experience shame, to judge other people, to judge yourself harshly. And you admit that. You accept that. You cry about that. You complain about that to close friends. Uh, you talk about it over and over and fixate on it. And you do the things you have to do to get in touch with the fact that there is pain there, that there is perhaps some degree of trauma there. And then, as you've learned to connect with that, you also start to remember the things about your faith that helped you. Maybe it, it helped you see the world in a way that was certain or clear. It let you make, make moral decisions. It let you feel involved in community. There were these, these blessings that came along with that faith. And the two paths here, one, getting in touch with and not denying the ways in which it hurt, but Two, also honoring the ways in which it helped you and indeed shaped you into who you are today are part of that emotional process of grief and recovery. Yeah. Uh, but it also means <laughs> you have to, to be mindful, to be aware of your mental thought process and notice when that old way of understanding evil influences your thinking today at which point you go <laughs> i don't think that way anymore yes and you begin to approach the world however you do today with whatever insight with whatever um you know ethical framework you use to make moral decisions you intentionally shift into it and remind yourself that you don't view suffering or unfortunate events as an antagonist agent operating with some license from God. Yeah. That's how you used to think, but it is not how you think today. Beautiful. So that, and that kind of brings me up to the idea uh, that I think when people that grow up in any kind of fundamentalist background, I, I think not just Christian, but when they begin to expand their thinking, there's a guilt that comes along with that. And there's a fear that comes along with that. It's kind of the slippery slope, you know, phenomenon that, man, if I take one step toward this, I will, I will wind up um, somewhere very dangerous and all my family will reject me, which might be true. What would you say about the slippery slope phenomenon? It's not a thing. Yes. There, there's, it's called a fallacy for a reason. Yes. Um, accepting one idea does not automatically lead to another. Um, 
I mean, first of all, I would say that we put too much stock in ourselves as rational agents that we overestimate our ability to evaluate a set of inputs and come to a conclusion via logic or rational thinking. Um, the science would tell me that human beings' beliefs are largely formed by social identity. The labels you use to describe yourself yeah. are much more predictive on how you'll interpret an issue than the information that's been put in front of you or the manner in which, in fact, that information has been put in front of you. Um, so if you're worried about a slippery slope, worry about where the labels you yes. assign yourself will take your beliefs. Um, you, you don't believe things because you figured something out through some elegant thinking. Your <laughs> worldview is largely shaped by social identity because you are a social primate. Yes. I read a quote several years ago that I've just loved, and it is, um, I found God at the end of the slippery slope, and she said, welcome home. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Have you heard of that? It's wonderful. Yeah. That's a great quote. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. At the end, of, I think, yeah, the end of the slippery slope would be the end of the fear, the yeah. end of the idea that everything's going to fall apart if you don't think in just a certain way. Yes. Yes. But I think it also reveals the power of these social identities that, and because they're largely unconscious, like we're not aware of what you just explained, that we make decisions based on social construct and identity versus, you know, some rational um, decision making that we thought we made, we didn't make, because that's largely unconscious. I think it's, I think it, it, it seems like it's really hard to break out of. Am, am I right on that? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's, I would say more than hard. It's impossible. Yeah. I think the great effort and there's a reason we talk about rigor in the yeah. world of academics, right? Rigorous thinking, rigorous, methodical research. It takes a powerful system of constructs, concepts, and accountability to mitigate effectively human unconscious bias. Yeah. It's what science is designed to do. It fails sometimes, but I think it works more than it doesn't. Um, but I don't think it's actually possible for any one person in isolation to pull themselves out of unconscious bias or social identity for more than, you know, moments at a time. Yeah. I think that's why the liturgists and other um, movements like that are, are becoming so powerful. It's like there's this naming of... Um, truth and sort of experience and mystery and science all wrapped together in some people who, who dare to be honest about some things and people are finding some great um, freedom within that I think so mm. um, so you were uh, a Southern Baptist and then you became an atheist and then you were standing in um, the ocean um, and something happened can you tell that story yeah, sure. I um, I guess I was standing up um, on the edge of the beach, um, and are, are you still there? Yes, yes. I heard a, I heard a blip, and I didn't know what that. I was. heard that I blip too. It was it was Satan, probably. I think trying to <laughs> the devil trying, trying to, to interrupt our podcast. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, I'm standing up on the beach and uh, it's probably like 2.30 in the morning. And uh, I was kind of uh, praying slash shouting at God because <laughs> uh, I didn't believe that God existed and I'd had this strange experience earlier in the evening where I'd, I'd heard a voice um, that that wasn't there and that made me confused as a non-believer. And uh, as I, I sort of let these condemnations out and, and, and all this anger and in, incredulity toward God, um, Sorry, it is really loud in my living room right now. I don't know what's going on, but it's loud. Can it's, you hear that? No, actually, I can't. Okay, good. It's, this microphone has great noise isolation. Yeah, Sorry. It's, it's amazing. Uh, so I, I tell God uh, that, that I, I don't know what I think about the Bible. I don't know what I think about the Christian faith. All that I know is that I've, I feel like I've met Jesus again. And hmm. um, the waves of the Pacific kind of rush up and you know wash my feet off. And, um, that seemed like a divine action to me. I know that mm. that seems very odd that I found a way it's so significant, but I did. <laughs> and so I looked up and I said, is this real? Is this happening? And then I had an incredibly powerful mystical experience. Um, and if, if you're a skeptical person, you know, these have been studied. They're, they're not, um, I'm not making some irrefutable supernatural claim here there's plausible explanations for how brains drive experiences like these but from my perspective i saw a light uh kind of before me but it wasn't like hovering in the air it was kind of shining through our reality i don't really have any good metaphor to hear. yeah yeah and the light uh, got brighter and surrounded me, and then I felt this warmth, and I felt this love. Only it wasn't a love I felt for something else. I felt a, a love that the light had for me. And moments later, I felt love that this light had for everyone. Wow. And then I just sort of left. I mean, I was just in this light for I don't know how long. And, um, and after a while it went away and I was standing in Laguna beach, California with mm -hmm. soggy shoes <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was the most singularly powerful and beautiful moment of my life by far. It's just, wow. it's not even close. Yeah. And I was so moved by it that, um, I went back home and ask my neurologist for a CAT scan because I thought I had brain cancer. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Um, I love, I love your journey. I love, I love, um, how you talk about, um, how we understand ourselves, how we understand God and you, and you came up with some axioms, which I found just to be so helpful for anyone who is maybe just like sort of having an experience like that after having, you know, walked away from it all that in the, the, these axioms, uh, that you created or, or, or came to believe just strike me as exactly what people 
who are maybe feeling a slight pull back to faithfulness, but are so afraid of getting caught up in that old system. Can you share maybe one of them and, um, and talk about how you came to, uh, you know, write those down. And so like all of them are, you know, like God is at least this. And even if that's all God is, then that's good because this, um, so can you, can you riff on those for a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't, um, I hardly ever think of them anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they, these were designed for someone who, like me, had a, a basic epistemological struggle with faith and belief. Yeah. Um, so if you've never been here, this doesn't make sense. But you can get to a point where any way people claim they believe in God sounds like nonsense to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like even that and story so- you just told, I mean, like— you told it in such a beautiful way, and I can hear some people going, "Oh my gosh!" You know, I mean, like, yeah, right, right. And they should. It's a, it's a, from a certain normative modern materialistic framework, which, by the way, works incredibly well. Yeah, it's ridding the world of disease. It's feeding billions of people. It's putting robots on Mars. It's making iPhones. This is a useful worldview. Yeah, um, it's a useful way of understanding reality. And if you get far enough into empiricism and materialism, uh, then you, there's no room for a God that loves you. Yeah. Or a God who is aware you exist. Yeah. I mean, the most you can get is maybe a deism, that there was a, a mover that caused the universe to be. But you don't get a God that's involved with the universe today. Yeah. And... Um, so I'm here with this worldview that is demonstrably effective and this experience of a bright light, this experience of hearing a voice that I thought was Jesus speaking to me, of a lifetime of faith, frankly. And uh, I wanted to seek out that light more. I wanted to see what that was about. But every time I would try to pray after that night on the beach, I felt ridiculous i felt like a grown man standing in line to see santa claus yeah self-conscious judging myself harshly what are you doing yeah. why don't you like look for the tooth fairy grow up <laughs> yes I'm so i had to figure out is there like some way in an empirical framework to understand god to understand prayer and sin and what faith itself is. And uh, so I started actually not with an axiom for God, but an axiom for faith. Hmm. I don't even remember if this is in the book or not. But um, faith is at least a way to contextualize the human need for spirituality and find meaning in the face of mortality. Even if this is all that faith is, spiritual practice can be beneficial to cognition, emotional states, and human culture. So it's this idea that whether or not spirituality denotes something supernatural, whether supernatural is a word that has merit or not, the fact that people have faith is one, driven from some pretty natural human needs, and two, can have some positive results, right? So I'm making an empirical claim that faith is useful, not necessarily that faith describes an objective feature of reality. 
and that's you know boy we're getting in the weeds here but no uh, no for someone who craves the practice of faith but can't get to the supernatural this for example allows you to have a spiritual meditation as opposed to like a secular mindfulness meditation without being so self-conscious and the way our brains work uh, when you feel self-conscious, your your um, rational analytical brain is basically coupling um, with some mechanisms in your limbic system and your orbitofrontal cortex to experience shame on self-analysis. Yes. And this is a way to break that cycle by giving the prefrontal cortex a cookie. Yeah. Here you go, yep. prefrontal cortex. Yep. Here's some rational information about this practice to get it out of the way. Because brain science tells us that our experiences with God aren't rational analytic. Right. They're experiential. They're based on the feeling parts of our brain. And so then as I kind of understood faith, I'll give an older version of the God axiom. God is at least the natural forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a psychosocial model in human brains that naturally emerges from innate biases. Even if that is a comprehensive definition of God. The pursuit of this personal subjective experience can provide meaning, peace, and empathy for others. In other words, God is why we're here, as well as what lets us view the universe as God. And yeah. if that's all that God is, it still can be good for us. And as I built these axioms, basically at first they just let me pray again. Yeah. But ultimately, they let me read the Bible, they let me participate in... A, a spiritual community at church and um, ultimately led me to mysticism where I was able to sit in contentment with my unknowing. Yes. Well, I think the reason why I asked Mike, and thank you so much for that great explanation. And by the way, uh, to everyone who's listening, I will include a link to all the axioms that I think maybe that was 2014 or 15 or maybe earlier that you made those, but, but anyway, I will include a link to those. I think it's so important because um, I know that just so many people who are listening feel like I can't go to church anymore, even though I want to, because I feel like such a phony. I feel like such a fake. Like I don't actually believe in those things the way that I feel like I have to. And so I can't engage at all. And so it's this, this but it's very painful, right? Because it's, it's for some people, it's not like, I just want to abandon everything and start something totally new. It's um, how how can I like? Is there a construct where I can begin to with with some rationality with the cookie to the prefrontal cortex? I love how you put that. Um, start to wade back in. So I think that's why it's so helpful um, for those of us who maybe uh, are having a hard time. So thank you for that. Um, mm. So I, I'd like to get in a little bit, <laughs> I was about to say, I'd like to get in a little bit to spiral dynamics, you know, just for a minute or two, because <laughs> that's a small topic. But I think I would like to get into that because I think it helps, it helps, it, it provides at least one framework for understanding how you don't understand a certain type of person and they drive you crazy, or you look you look with disdain on a certain group of people or with fear in a certain group of people. And I think spiral dynamics helps us um, understand a little bit of human consciousness and where it's been and where it's going. So do you have a, you know, elevator version of what 
the idea of spiral dynamics is? Uh, it's based on the work of Claire Graves and Don Beck. And um, spiral dynamics is a model for understanding uh, the evolution and interaction between human consciousness, the environment, and the changes human consciousness brings to the environment. Um, it is uh, interesting in that it attempts to explain both the progression of an individual human consciousness as well as the collective aggregate of human consciousness in a society simultaneously. Right. Um, so it is uh, interesting, insightful, powerful, extremely Western-centric, um, limited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think some people... Um, when they first get hear the theory, it becomes like a theory of everything for humanity as opposed to a model that is good, you know, in descriptive capacity in certain circumstances, especially in, you know, Western civilization. For sure. Well, maybe if we have time, we can get into second tier thinking. That would be fun. But can you just kind of go through the colors um, and and then give some examples perhaps so that people can get a little bit of a framework of, of how it works. Yeah. So, uh, this is super tough to do, yeah. um, without any visuals. Uh, so I just want to, I'm going like, to include, admitting that. I'm going to include, um, I know, I mean, it works best to kind of do step by step, but I will include some of the visuals on the show notes. So folks like open up the show notes, steveweens.com slash show notes, even as Mike is talking here, um, as you're listening, if you're at home, if you're not driving, if you're not running, if you're not riding your bike, and if you are, you can check them out when you get home. So um, go ahead. So the first thing you would say is the, the name. Spiral dynamics is important. Why a spiral? Uh, it is composed of these uh, levels of consciousness, V-memes, which are cognitive containers. They don't describe what you believe. They describe the confines on the ideas your consciousness can contemplate. Yes. And, uh, and they exist in a spiral. It means that as you move through the spiral, there's a widening of what ideas your consciousness can entertain, but not necessarily what you believe. And dynamics, meaning that it's not the Enneagram. It's not Myers-Briggs. You don't find one of these levels and discover that's you your particular circumstances in each and every moment will dictate what the dominant V-meme is for you, what the dominant level of consciousness is. You don't, get, you don't stay anywhere in spiral dynamics. Right. You kind of have a maximum achieved V-meme, then you have sort of your normative day-to-day V-meme, and then given your circumstances, you may move to other places. The other thing to understand about these V-memes is Later stages of consciousness aren't better. They're adaptations to environment. There's no reason to aspire to a new V-meme. They all have healthy and unhealthy representations. And um, 
yeah, just definitely don't think like, ooh, you hear the higher ones. That's me. Yeah. Or, that <laughs> or I got to get to that. I got to get to that. That's wrong. So in Spiral Dynamics, it begins at the archaic stage of consciousness, which we uh, describe with the color beige. And this would be a pre-civilization, pre-linguistic humanity. The goal is here to survive, to get food, shelter, safety, and sex. Um, if you were to imagine a beige V-meme in modern society, picture an infant. Yeah, Infants are all about the fulfillment of their basic physical needs. Think about someone in a war zone yeah. uh, or in a chaotic situation. Think about a homeless person. Uh, someone who is trying to figure out where their next meal is going to come from. And if that goes well, if you are able to, on a sustainable basis, achieve your needs, or as a culture, you uh, move from uh, non-linguistic troops to linguistic tribes with culture and support systems, then you move into the magical, mythical stage of consciousness, whose color is purple. These colors, by the way, are arbitrary. Yeah. And at this level, we serve the tribe, we placate the spirits, we honor family and ancestors. The shaman has power yeah. in a purple tribe, the ones who can intermediate with the unseen spirits that control when the rains come and nourish the crops, for example. Um, and uh, as things are good and, and we're eating and uh, you know the, the hunt is plentiful, uh, then you can grow into the power ego V meme, which can, is I, can I pause for red. a second? Can I pause for a second, sure. Mike? So, like, as you read the Hebrew scriptures, as you read, you know, Joshua going into the promised land, is that primarily purple? Um, there's some purple there. There's some red. Okay. Too. Yeah. I mean, you know, the we read about. Moses's ability to sustain an erection yes. in the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> yeah. That's a very red idea. Yeah. sexuality. Um, he still had his so vigor. It, he still had his vigor. Right. So, so good. Um, okay. So back to red. Yeah. The Hebrew Bible, um, it gets all the way up into blue. Okay. Uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, in red, you have power, ego, dominate, win, display sexual prowess and hmm. virility. This is sports. When we play sports. We send our warriors onto the field of battle, painted in the colors of the tribe, and we all scream. Um, that's red. Yeah. Um, this, is, uh, this is dictators and autocrats. They're red leaders. Everything's about display of power. If you buy a Corvette... That is that is that is a red car. Yeah, it is muscular. It is sleek. It is oddly only appreciated by other men. But um, <laughs> if you say that too much, Corvette cells would fall. <laughs> um, I drove a motorcycle for a while, and uh, like women never yeah. notice the motorcycle. Other guys <laughs> notice the motorcycle, right? That's uh, the which trope, is interesting though. Signaling, yeah, but yeah. it's. it's it's uh, I don't know. That's so good. Um, so red, red is actually an essential development in human psychology and uh, individual psychology. You have to be able to assert your ego in order to do anything in the world. We we tend to look down on red, right? Uh, because we think of its unhealthy expressions. But um, 
if you see someone being oppressed, you kind of have to go red to do something about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, anyway. Uh, so after you go to red, uh, eventually people will get tired of beating uh, beat up by the powerful warrior of physical strength alone, determining viability for rule. And then you get to the blue or traditional V meme where we're going to create order and culture by following the sacred text. The is important because there's only one story for everyone. Right. Uh, obedience creates future rewards in blue. Think an afterlife. Think promotions in a hierarchy, which blue, it's very important to follow hierarchy. And the meaning, purpose, and certainty in life come from following one story. So um, evangelicalism in America is very blue. The uh, monarchy deriving its authority from God is very blue. This is the big development that the, the king gets his authority from God and not the fact that he can kill other people. Right. Right. Um, of course, the Bible is like an incredible <laughs> yeah. blue document. Right. Um, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament both become this sacred text uh, which establishes all authority. You know, God save the queen. Yeah. Welcome to blue. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. This is a blue anthem. Yeah for the Constitution, although oddly enough, the Constitution, although it is frequently interpreted through the traditional V-meme, is not a blue document, hmm. uh, because the next stage of development is the modern rational stage, whose color is orange, and in orange, you have competition via merit. You start asking why. Why does the king get to be the king? Why does the Bible have authority? Show me with the merit. In culture, this looked like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, yeah. right? Yeah. We're going to support ideas with data and with evidence. So we hold these truths to be self-evident. Um, we, the people of the United States, the founding documents of the American experiment all attempted to describe the merit of this form of governance. Yeah. They didn't say, we appeal to God's authority to establish a new nation. No, we, the people of the United States, do this because, and we establish it on merit. Yes. Google is an incredibly orange company. Every decision at Google is made by looking at data, by looking at evidence, by looking at information. And orange is, is cool. It lets you put astronauts in space. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's an interesting V-meme. This is science, and this are, is also capitalism. Are, like, algorithms orange, you know, like that understanding of how to... They're an orange methodology. Right. Got it. Yeah. They're, they're an orange technique. Yeah. And now, interestingly enough, in the evangelical church today, you see a lot of blue theology with orange practice. Yes. Um, so we, we believe there's this one truth, this one sacred book, there's this one story. But like how we reach people, we're going to look at the data and see what works. Mm -hmm. And whatever works, we're going to invest more in and what doesn't, we won't. Yeah. So that's like a blue-orange transitional v -me. Interesting. Um, and then after orange, 
comes uh, the world V-meme, world consciousness, whose color, of course, is green, yes. which is protect the earth, honor all stories, and abandon hierarchy. Green can't stand hierarchy, which leads us to an interesting point. You tend to look forward on the spiral with fear and back with disdain. Yeah, yeah. So green just like holds its nose at primitive blue. Oh my gosh, yeah. blue, give me a break. But actually tends to like purple hmm. because purple in its animism has room for more stories. And so there can be a synergy between uh, purple and green. There can also be a synergy between blue and purple, by the way. Everyone tends to try to exploit the disempowered purple. Huh. Um, so here we are. We're abandoning hierarchy. We are the world. We're going to save the planet. We're going to occupy Wall Street. Little problem with green. We can't get anything done <laughs> yeah. because nobody's in charge. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. see this like in startup culture. Startups, they, they, they begin green. They're, you know, the CEO is just like he's out on the floor with everybody else. There's no office spaces. And that works great until you get to about four people. Yeah. And then it starts to be a problem. You need people to be in charge of particular things. And what will happen is, and this is the dynamic portion, as organizations grow, you'll see orange get reintegrated. You'll see blue get reintegrated. And that's the only way for an institution or an organization to actually grow. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think you see that right now with Black Lives Matter, which is an extremely green movement but is starting to organize to great success, right? Yep. Orange and blue are starting to show up with spreadsheets and org charts and lists of demands and particulars. And in that way, the work becomes more effective. Yeah. Um, and that kind of takes us through, you know, the original vision of Spiral Dynamics, the beige archaic, the blue, magical, mythical, the red, power, ego, the blue, traditional, orange, modern, rational, and green, world, V-memes of consciousness. Yeah. So um, as we in, in America here and are, 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 are uh, becoming more, it seems like becoming more and more isolated, afraid, um, wh where would you, like, if you were to hazard a guess, Mike, like sort of where the U S is right now in terms of, in terms of color of Vimeo, uh, where would you say we are? Gosh. Um, I would say the center of gravity and the populace is purple. Yep. Um, I would say that the center of gravity and leadership on the GOP side was blue until November of last year when it went really red. Yep. Right now, red is just absolutely cleaning the carpet with blue in the GOP. Yep. Um, and every time blue tries to get up, red knocks it over again. Yeah. Uh, which is fascinating. It fascinating. Is. Um, by the way, historically, this has not gone well. Um, well, in, in, when red took over in Iran, you went from blue, orange to purple, right? Right. Uh, red, red, you don't give red modern democracies, <laughs> Right. <laughs> you don't give red modern 
weaponry. You don't give Red uh, what Red has right now. On the left, um, it's a very green-orange leadership with a purple coalition. Hmm. Um, and what you saw in November, by the way, is Red stole some of the purple, a lot of the purple in the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, from from the Democrats, because purple is disempowered. Purple yep. says, "Who's going to move forward?" And red says, "Me with great confidence. Yep. I'm the strongest. I'll go in. I'll knock those. I'll knock those fools on their asses for you." Yep. And purple goes, "Yes, right." Um, so interestingly enough, sometimes purple, uh, red can speak purple language better than green. Green makes purple feel understood. And maybe can make them feel safe, but they can't make purple feel empowered. So I think that's what's happening in America right now. Thank you so much for saying that. It's interesting because I, as I said, I live in Minnesota, typically a very, um, very DFL state, very democratic state. I mean, we, we, um, but uh, right, probably a month before the election, I drove, so October, I drove out of the Twin Cities, which all you saw were uh, Hillary signs and Hillary bumper stickers and all that stuff. And I drove uh, what we call outstate, which is, you know, rural. And I mean, all I could see were, were Trump pence, um, um, bumper stickers, yard signs. And it was really fascinating. And I, I, I remember because I hadn't really been rural for a while. And I remember going, oh, here we go. Here we go. Um, someone is saying someone is giving um folks who have felt really left out some empowerment like like red and, and red does that right i mean i will as you said i will kick their ass for you and i'll get it done yesterday um and i think that's exactly what happened interesting the problem though is red creates a tribal marker and so while like white purple in the midwest feels heard um People of color all over the country now feel like they're on the other side right. of a very important dividing line. Right. Um, and that that's why the, I think this is an unhealthy expression of red. Right. Because the tribe looks more like um, 1950s America than 2017 America. Like I, I actually think if, if the populist uprising that Trump represents... Um, was a multiracial coalition yeah. that was deeply concerned with poverty and income collapse in the middle class across the racial spectrum, then I would, I would probably be wearing a make America great again hat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but instead it's, it's a, it's a red that is uh, saying, I'll take care of you by demonizing. Yeah. American citizens. And that's, that's what concerns me. Exactly. Well, that's well said. And I think it, 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 it seems to be lifting up a sort of false nostalgia about, you know, the 1950s and, and sort of, um, as you said, casting a bit of a blind eye to the current reality. And I think that appeals to lots of people. Yeah. Let's go back. Let's go back to, you know, those days, wherever those days were in which we've forgotten all the problems instead of, how can we move forward with, with really what is? So, well, I, okay, so um, I don't know if we, gosh, 
you just tell me because I can move right on. But you said Spiral Dynamics is very Western. It's very limited. Do we have time to get into second tier thinking? Is that just too big of a nut to chew off at minute 48? Um, I mean, if you want to talk about it, we can. Um, Let's go there. theoricians speculate that uh, there's V-memes beyond green and yeah. that uh, Spiral Dynamics is built on octaves and this is another octave of consciousness. Um, whereas the first tier has, you know, so a body of research to support it, the second tier does not. Um, so even among like the, the Beck school, the Spiral Dynamics proper, the second tier is not well supported by okay. data. Um, of course, the entire theory is expressed by Ken Wilber through integral theory is not an evidence-based model, but instead, uh, you know, kind of a metaphysical, philosophical framework. Yep. Which is interesting, but um, I've already disclosed my empiricist bias earlier in the program. Yeah. But there's this idea that maybe after Green uh, attaches to the Internet and gets real-time feedback from all stories across the globe that it gets a fire hose of physics thrown in there as well, um, there can become an intuitive insight where the nature of V-memes is intuitively understood. And at that point, you have yellow, a reflection of beige, the first stage of an integral consciousness. And at that point, nothing is certain. Uh, you can't, how do you know anything? You just have this intuitive knowledge that people have worldviews they're using to try to survive. And then you begin to exploit this system to survive because you understand motivations of red and purple and blue and orange and green. You can speak in their language to your personal gain. So yellow hides. Yellow feels alone, uh, much like beige does. Yellow tries to survive. It uses the tools that it has. Only now those tools are the mechanisms of human consciousness. And if that goes okay, there's this idea that you can reach a turquoise or holistic stage of consciousness where you realize that everything is part of a singular whole. You connect with others who understand that and begin to make intentional steps to protect all life, not just human life. Uh, It's fascinating. Um, There's a theoretical phase beyond that called coral. Um, I don't know how much... I buy into it. Um, I, I just think it's too soon to make such predictions. Yeah. Because uh, there's not enough research to make a claim. Are there, Mike, are there any uh, speakers, thinkers, writers these days that, that, that are in any way, shape, or form well-known? I mean, I think about Richard Rohr. Like, is he, is he someone that might inhabit a yellow or beyond? Maybe. I mean, the, the question is, is it yellow or is it like green plus? Right. You see what I mean? Like, is this just a further development of the existing framework or something new? Right. Um, I think if there is something like yellow, then someone like Richard Rohr could represent it. But I, I don't know. And I'm also generally... You know, you want to be careful prescribing V-memes to other people. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, that's a good call. Good call. I mean, I used our president earlier, but I think he, you know, 
if you if you told him Spiral Dynamics, I think he would probably just. I mean, he, he has red hats for God's sake, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I get it. You know, I, I mean, think yeah, yeah, I didn't think that was a stretch, but in general, I'm reticent. To yeah, no, that's good. That is that is totally totally. Um, okay, I, I have a I have a question um, from my friend Ferg who lives in Dublin, and he's a he's a therapist, he's a theologian, and he's doing some work on the the. Um, association between PTSD and kids who were taught sort of the really severe version of hell, which is you'll be, you'll burn forever apart from your parents and you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so have you ever thought about, or have you ever seen any associations like that? Anecdotally? Sure. Yeah. I haven't seen research about it, so I'd be fascinated. I'll be in Dublin in October at the Rubicon conference. So if he'll be around, I'd love to hear him personally. Okay, Ferg, uh, the gauntlet has been thrown down. I mean, he, he also said, so I, I, I posted, Hey, I'm gonna have science Mike on the show. And, um, what, what, what questions would you have? And then a, a couple of guys from Dublin said, you know, made overtures to having beers and coffees with you. So you can, you can, <laughs> you, you can deal with that once you get there, but yeah, I'll, um, I'll be in town. So Ferg, I, I I think what I'm hearing is, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, we did an episode on spiritual trauma and that would have been really useful to have. So that was a fascinating episode. PS. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Mike, uh, do you have time for a speed round? Sure. Just free association questions. I have seven of them just quick. Okay, number one, <laughs> anterior cingulate cortex. Just, just quick free association. Um, the neurons that give us compassion, empathy, and the seeds of love. Beautiful. And of course, I pulled that from your quote that that your brilliant and hilarious quote that said, "I don't so much have Jesus in my heart, but I, but Jesus does reside in my interior cingulate cortex, the seat of compassion." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh gosh, I love that. Um, and P.S. listeners, if if you haven't read Mike's book, Finding God in the Waves: How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. Uh, it's so good. I will include a link in the, in the show notes. So check it out. Okay. Number two, faith. Hope. Beautiful. Number three, nerdy. <laughs> Sexy. <laughs> well played. The new sir. Sexy. With the new sexy. Nerdy is the new sexy. Oh, I think you have your next book title. Nerdy is the new sexy. <laughs> I think I think we have landed. I'll talk to Chris about it and he'll uh, he'll 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 push that forward. Uh, number four, honesty. The greatest challenge to the human animal Whoa. is to be honest with oneself. That's good. Um, next one, skeptical. 
my favorite tool in the toolbox. Really? That's awesome. That is brilliant. Especially paired with the last one, right? Absolutely. That is so good. That is so beautiful. Uh, Next one, Michael Gunger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As mystics, my feelings for Michael Gunger are beyond the articulation of words. Beautiful. Okay, last one, future. Faith. Did you say faith? I said faith. Oh, that's good. Well, um, man, quickest hour of my week just happened right now. Uh, <laughs> that was really, a good time. Thank that you. was so, oh gosh, this was, I, I wish we had more time. Um, so, uh, w- w- was there any, um, Okay, can I ask one? And, and this can be like number eight on the on the uh, speed round because I don't. Um, I know we're out of time. You got a house to pack. You got dogs to feed. You got you got L.A. to get to. But um, <laughs> is there anything fresh that like? And I'm sure there is. But like, is there anything quick you can tell us about sort of what you're thinking about now, what you're working on now, sort of the you know in the file folder to be to be fleshed out later? Is there just even a title or a or, uh, or an idea? Um, well, I mean, my work is so... It's it's pronged, right? We've got some really good stuff coming on the Liturgist podcast, for sure. Uh, topics people want us to cover for a long time. We're working on an episode on sex. We're working on a series on God. Um... So a lot of my thought is there. Um, but then I'm probably the thing I think about most right now is, is the next book I'm working on, uh, where I'm trying to unpack why our own behaviors and beliefs and feelings can surprise us so much. Like why do we do things that we don't want to do and why don't we do things that we do want to do? And uh, I got it, uh, I got a box of about 50 books at my feet where I'm trying to find the answer. Beautiful. Well, and as long you you know as long Mike as you can fit in nerdy is the new sexy into the byline <laughs> or you know or maybe the foreword, uh, I, I think we'll be satisfied. Uh, but that sounds really all those things sound great. Uh, so friends, uh, really. Uh, invest in Mike's work. You can find him on the liturgists. I'll include the, I'll include all these links on the show notes, but the liturgists, that's his, that's his podcast that he co-hosts with, um, Michael Gunger and friends and ask science. Mike is fascinating because the listeners choose the questions and then Mike just riffs on the answers. Brilliant. Um, finding God in the waves, how I lost my faith and found it again through science. That's the book uh, that he wrote last that's out. And is there anything else uh, that I missed, Mike, that you, that like where we can find you, where we can experience your work? Uh, AskScienceMike.com has links to everything you just mentioned. Okay. Just go to AskScienceMike.com 
and anywhere you're going to be coming up that uh, might be fascinating for people to check in. I, I heard Dublin, and I know many, actually quite a few listeners um, are from Ireland, and especially Dublin. So anywhere else you're going to be? Doing a UK tour uh, in October, so we'll do London, Manchester, Edinburgh, and uh, Dublin. And then uh, we'll do liturgist gatherings in Los Angeles, Boston, and Seattle in September and October. We're taking the summer off to move the family, though. Yeah. Uh, but as always, if you go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events, I go all over, man. <laughs> all right. Well, that sounds like the way to go. Just go to AskScienceMike.com and um, find out all kinds of beautiful, delicious, good stuff and nerdy stuff, which is what I like the best. Um Thanks, Mike. Uh, just much luck and and uh, blessings on you as you move. And I really look forward to hearing more of your stuff, reading more of your stuff. Um, you're a huge gift to many of us who um, are exploring what's next here in spirituality and faith. And uh, so thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. That's really kind. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Weens Author, Twitter at Steve Weens, and Instagram at Steve Weens. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash thisgoodword. Suburban.